Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. 100 episodes. I am floored. I did not know what to expect when I started the show. I'm sort of surprised in a happy way that we got here. I had been on only one show before this one and really didn't know what to expect when I started this. But the show has grown. It's improved. It was on the radio for a while. It's got a following. And here we are. Thank you all for helping me get this far. For episode 100, it's all your questions to me about the show. And I want to start with by far the most common question I got after last week. Folks asking, why the name change? Why is Interesting Times turning into the Weird History Podcast? A couple of reasons. When I first started the show, I think I had this idea that it would be about really especially horrible things, nasty stuff. For example, episode two is all about the axe murder incident in the Korean DMZ, and I thought that would be representative of the type of thing that I wanted to talk about, really especially weird, horrible stuff involving death, gruesomeness, badness, etc., Um, the proverb, may you live in interesting times, is an ironic one. The idea being that it's a curse. If somebody is living in interesting times, they are not having a great time. Uh, they are living in a time that it is interesting to read about and talk about and study, but not in a good time to live. So, if something is interesting to a fan of history, that is kind of sort of an act of schadenfreude you are kind of taking pleasure in somebody else's suffering. And I kind of wanted that irony to be in the title. Also, it's an homage to Terry Pratchett. Uh, Terry Pratchett is probably the greatest fantasy author ever. Uh, He's the author of the amazing, intelligent, and hilarious Discworld series. And one of his books is titled Interesting Times. And it is also an homage to Eric Hobsbawm, my favorite historian. Uh, I grew up reading Hobsbawm, and his memoir is called Interesting Times. But all that stuff, the irony, the Pratchett reference, the Hobsbawm reference, which I thought was all neat and tidy, I think was lost on a lot of people. Most people, when they heard the name, just assumed that I was proclaiming myself to be interesting, or I was proclaiming the subject matter to be interesting. And that was never my intent. My intent was to never really self-identify as something that you really want to, like, gaze and wonder upon because it's just so transfixing. No, my intent was to reference stuff I liked and to be kind of ironic. And I don't think that got through. Also, the podcast kind of went in a direction I didn't think it would go. Um, we haven't really focused on really awful, horrible, bloody, nasty, interesting things. Instead, there's been a lot of focus on, for instance, ancient palindromes, or platypuses not being a hoax, or non-existent countries, or that sort of thing, which is fun, but weird is a better term. And the Weird History Podcast, it might be a little on the nose, but it is what you see is what you get, and I appreciate that. Another question. This question comes from longtime listener and supporter Colin, who asked me this some time ago. He asked me, why the new theme music? Well, initially, I didn't think I needed theme music. When I listen to podcasts on my iPhone and I hear theme music, I just press a little 
15 second ahead button. But a lot of folks said I needed theme music. It helps with your identity. It helps with your brand. People hear it and they go, oh, it's that thing I like. So yeah, I had to pick something out. So I went and listened to a whole bunch of things on public domain music sites and couldn't find anything that I liked. I was at a loss. Eventually, I found a march by Holst that sounded like it was the introduction to something and also was public domain. So this Holst march, which sounded very intro-ish, I just thought, okay, fine. I need to put something there. March by Holst, that's what we're doing. But I don't think that that music really matched the subject matter or really matched my personality. I do like classical music, but I am not the type of guy who is described by this show's old theme music. So I wanted to pick something that was more in keeping with the attitude of the show and what I am like as a person. So I found this kind of dark punkish surf rock thing by a band called the Vivisectors. It's a song called Cowboy Surfer that really does sound like a theme song and also was on Free Music Archive and I was allowed to use it as long as there was attribution. So thank you, The Vivisectors, for your song, Cowboy Surfer. Uh, I think it captures the feel of the podcast a lot more. And I also think it is more in keeping with what type of person I am as a host. So that's why I did it. If you missed the old theme song, though, it will live on in your hearts. All right, another question. This question comes from John on Facebook. His question is, how do you or anyone go about researching an esoteric historical topic? Oh, man. Okay, so a bit about research in general. When you are researching topics like this, there are, very broadly, three levels of sources. There's primary sources. Primary sources would be like John and Abigail Adams's letters to each other. You know, stuff written by people during a time period. That's a primary source. Uh, contemporary newspaper articles from the time period that you're studying. That's a primary source. Stuff like that. Secondary sources, that is academic literature about it. Academic historians who are really, really working with the primary sources and writing about it, you got that. And then there are tertiary sources, which are for popular reading. I am a tertiary source. This podcast is a tertiary source. And that is a lot of people getting into the academic stuff and kind of compressing that down, summarizing that, and bringing all that together and communicating it for a popular audience. So whenever I study something, um, I actually usually will start with tertiary sources, books or articles written for a popular audience, but I don't stop there because what tertiary sources have that's really useful, because what tertiary sources have that are really useful are citations. So if there is somebody citing something or writing about something or talking about something, I will go over there and I will find the academic historian that they are referencing. Also, those secondary sources will also have citations. So historians will talk about other historians. They will also point you where you need to go, which is great. And, of course, there's the primary sources. Now, I do not speak a lot of languages. I speak English, very little Japanese, and I could probably order lunch in French, but that's it. So if primary sources are in English, I will also read those. 
If they're not, I just have to trust what the historians say. Most of the time when I'm researching something, there is some secondary literature about it. There are some academic historians who have made this their thing. And if you are on sites like, say, JSTOR or Google Scholar or other academic search sites, you will probably find something pertaining to what you're looking for. So that's my general process. Working backwards from popular stuff to academic stuff to original stuff. And the question was, how do I or anyone go about researching an esoteric historical topic? Well, here's the thing. Sometimes we just have to be satisfied with not knowing stuff. And I know that is a really, really unsatisfying answer. But if the work isn't out there, it just isn't out there. If no scholar or grad student or historian somewhere has made it their project to look into a thing, well, then obviously you are not going to be able to read about their thing. Now, you can go to primary sources. You can be the person who is doing all of that initial research into that thing. And that is great to do if you're able to pull it off. But if you don't speak the language, then you got a problem. So I'm afraid that I have to say this. I am really, I really hate this answer. But sometimes esoteric topics just kind of stay esoteric. Sometimes the obscure thing that you're looking into is obscure for a pretty good reason. The sources just aren't there, or the academic work just hasn't been done. And that's unsatisfying. But if you're going to be like me, and you really want to get into multiple reputable sources before you talk about something, you have to content yourself with that. Which is infuriating sometimes, but that's history. I'm sorry. Oh, another question. This question also comes from Facebook. Jamie from the British History Podcast asks, Does this chicken smell alright to you? No. No, Jamie. It does not. Put that away. Alright. Question from Twitter. Sydney asks, Rank your favorite somewhat historically inaccurate history films. Think along the lines of Newsies. Okay, first off, I kind of love Newsies. Um, I do like musicals, and Newsies is absurd. I especially like Newsies because it just kind of revels in its own absurdity. Newsies knows what it is. Newsies knows that it is a big, goofy excuse for baby Batman to get out there and dance around in a vest and old-timey pants and a newsboy cap, and it just doesn't apologize for it at all. It just goes. But my top somewhat historically inaccurate films. Okay, going to pick five. Number five, Gladiator. And I know this would be on a lot of lists of historically inaccurate films, but there are so many issues with Gladiator. It is so problematic. The way it shows Romans fighting like the barbarians at the beginning, uh, later on Marcus Aurelius and Commodus and all that is totally not what happened. Commodus, Joaquin Phoenix's character, real guy, real emperor, real bad guy. But the circumstances of his death are actually way more lurid and weird than what you see in the movie. Um, he was strangled to death in a bathhouse by a wrestler, which is bizarre and different from getting stabbed by Russell Crowe in the arena. I remember watching Gladiator when I was in my 20s, and I was with one of my history nerd friends, and he was just losing it while we were watching this thing and drinking beer, and he was ranting about how wrong the whole thing was, and I was just laughing at him. And every time I watch Gladiator now, I think of Eric, my history nerd friend, 
who just couldn't take it. All right, number four, Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia is a beautiful, amazing movie. I remember seeing it on a big screen with my dad when I was a teenager at Portland Cinema 21. And seeing that movie in all of its big screen glory was phenomenal. I love that film. However, the film does not really portray the complexities and the consequences of British involvement in the Middle East at the dawn of the 20th century. My stepmother spent eight years in the Middle East in the 1980s. She is fluent in Arabic, and she has some opinions about how the British handled things uh, when they were basically occupying that area. That movie does not really do a good job of showing how much the British fouled up the modern Middle East. This is not to say that every single problem of the modern Middle East can be attributed to the British Empire, but a lot of them can. And Lawrence of Arabia doesn't really show that adequately. Also, T.E. Lawrence was a queer man, and apparently one of his favorite things to do was get beat up by other dudes. So he was sexually unconventional, and that movie does not really show that. As much as I like the original Lawrence of Arabia, though, I would kind of like to see it be remade. And I'd kind of like to see it be remade because I would love to see a film really, really going into the complexities, you know, of the British in the Middle East and with a queer protagonist. That movie would be fascinating. It'll never happen, but it would be fascinating. Okay, number three. This is a total guilty pleasure, but a beautiful mind. Um, I majored in political science, and a big part of that was studying game theory. Game theory is totally fascinating. And if you're studying game theory, that means you study John Nash, the protagonist of A Beautiful Mind. Now, I went through this big John Nash phase when I was in college and got into a lot of his stuff and also like a lot of stuff by John von Neumann, who kind of elaborated on a lot of Nash's theories. And I was so into this that my kind of crappy college band was literally named Prisoner's Dilemma. And so when I found out that there was a movie about John Nash, um, I thought, that's amazing. That's great. I want to see it. And the movie is cheesy and sappy and uh, it's kind of great and kind of a great tearjerker, but it's totally inaccurate. Its summary of game theory is bad. <laughs> it's just totally bad. Also, like Lawrence of Arabia... It washes over the main character's queerness. John Nash, in real life, was bisexual. Also, he divorced his wife, cheated on his wife, and remarried her. They gloss over that, though. They flash forward from the events of the film to his old age, just showing them married in the past, and then married in the present, and it does not show them get divorced. A more interesting movie would have been all about that. Number two. The Western as a genre. Yes, I am choosing an entire genre here because probably the entire genres of Westerns are guilty of showing the American West as being more violent, more lawless, more explosive, and more gunfighty than it actually was. There was violence in what we would call the Old West. There were gunfights. There were outlaws. However, it's not something that happened just because it was Wednesday you were far more likely to die of a disease than to die of violence. This is not to say that there weren't murders and brawls, but the kind of video gamey, war gamey, good guys against bad guys, lawlessness of the 
but I still love westerns. And I kind of love the fictional world and the tropes of the western, even though, again, not really well supported by what we actually know about the late 1800s. All right, in my number one film that's somewhat historically inaccurate is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. (laughs) If you're looking to watch Bill and Ted because you want to get a good grade on your history project, don't. (laughs) Do not do that. But it is still amazing. I would be lying to you if I said that that movie didn't have any kind of impact on me. When I was a little kid and that movie came out and I saw these, like, totally rad rocker dudes palling around with, like, Genghis Khan and Napoleon, I thought it was awesome. And it kind of made me want to know what the deal with Socrates was. So I found out what the deal with Socrates was, and I feel like I'm the better for it. That movie's amazing. Be excellent to each other. All right, we have another question from Facebook. This one is also from Jamie hosted a British history podcast, and Jamie asks, Hey, do you want some free chicken? No. No. I do not. All right. This question is also from Twitter. Mark asks, What's your favorite civilization in Civilization V? (laughs) Uh, Mark, how did you know? How did you know that I a guy with a history podcast, plays Civilization. Um, I love the Civ series. I have been playing Civ or since Civ 2 came out. Kind of missed Civ 3. Really liked Civ 4. Love Civ 5. Looking forward to Civilization 6. Okay. I have two favorite civilizations in Civilization 5. One, Poland. The extra social policies they get are a huge advantage no matter what victory type that you're going for. So they are probably the most powerful and most flexible sieve in the game. Yeah, Poland. And number two, the Maya. Uh, The Maya get an early science bonus, and that early science bonus is big. They start producing and advancing before everybody else does, and that big relative advantage means that if you're doing a science victory with the Maya, that'll be easy. But also, if you're doing a domination victory with them, hey, You are going to have gunpowder and rifles and tanks before everybody else does. So the Mayan are probably the most satisfying sieve to play because a science advantage means that they can just bulldoze over everybody else in the mid game. It's especially satisfying if you happen to be playing against Spain. And yeah, you're thinking, yes, justice. This is a reversal of actual history. Take that. All right. Question from Facebook. Janice asks, how did you get into history? That's kind of a broad question, but I got lucky. So I was privileged to grow up and have a history teacher as a father. And my dad, not only was he a history teacher, but he was good at it. When I've met people who had him as an instructor, they have told me how awesome he was. There have been a few people who told me that he's also a giant weirdo, but for the most part, people like to say that they learned a lot. When I was growing up, there were books in my house. There were a lot of books in my house, and I don't remember a time not knowing how to read. Having a teacher as a parent was extremely formative for me, and when I reached for something in the house from a bookshelf, learned something. And this was since the age of, like, six. So I grew up reading and learning 
and having a guy whose job it was to teach other t children, teach me. And that helped a lot. I don't want to make it sound like I was some sort of prodigy. I wasn't. I was lucky. I was privileged. And I try to remember that. Also, I had some really amazing history teachers. Uh, I eventually went to an international baccalaureate high school, and the teachers that I had there were exceptional. When I hear about other people disliking their high school history class, or about thinking that history is boring, I really have a hard time understanding that, wrapping my head around it, because I was so fortunate in the instruction that I got. Later on, when I went to college, I had a few dud professors, but I also sought out some really, really good ones. And, and I've tried to cultivate that same kind of passion that they instilled in me. So, how did I get into this? I had people in my life who helped me get into it. I am kind of like a walking advertisement for good early education. It works. It sticks. Read to your kids. All right, Alex on Facebook asks, You seem to like history a lot. Have you ever thought about getting an advanced degree? <sighs> yes. Yes, I have. I have thought about going to school to get a PhD. Every single academic historian I know has told me not to do that. I have, in various moments, talked to grad students and PhD havers I know and said, you know what? I really want to get legit. I really want to actually get those letters next to my name. I want to go back to school. And then they'll inevitably say, shut up, Joe. You're drunk. Don't do that. It would be an immense time commitment. It would be an immense money commitment. So... I've thought about it, but I'm probably never going to do it unless I can do it for free, which is really, really unlikely. If any of you guys out there want to subsidize me getting a PhD over the next decade, well, that would be great, but I really don't think that is going to happen. In the meantime, though, I try to be as thorough and responsible and truthful as possible, and I want to continue to do so. Thank you all for sending in your questions. Thank you all for listening. Also, Thank you very much to those of you who donate on Patreon. We just made our first Patreon goal, so there are going to be a few changes over at the website. I mean, on top of the changes of it being called the Weird History Podcast and WeirdHistoryPodcast.com, there will also be Patreon-related changes. More on that soon. Thanks, guys, very much. Here's hoping for another 100 episodes. Bye. Bye. <laughs>